Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, really good to see you here. Um, Paul and I are doing a little bit of a double act today. Uh, it's, it's communion, and we do want to focus on that. And I hope that what I say tonight from Genesis will lead us into that. Um, so uh, I'm going to split my talk into two halves. Uh, we're going to have a half now, uh, a song, a half, a half uh, afterwards, and then communion. And the reason for that is that I've got quite a lot of material to cover in Genesis. We're continuing our series in Genesis. And if you remember, we're up to Genesis 5. Very quick recap. Uh, we've had the creation in seven days. We've had the creation of man. We've had the fall of man, the temptation and the fall of man. And last week, Phil Sapi opened up Genesis 4 to us, which was the outworking of sin that had come into the world. And we looked at Cain and Abel. And in Genesis 5 and 6, uh, or at least the first eight verses of chapter 6, I'm going to look at that again, this outworking of sin. So the theme, really, of my two talks is the outworking of sin and how God is going to deal with it. Okay, so bear that overall theme in mind. So we're going to come to Genesis 5. Um, so if you've got scriptures in front of you, uh, do open to Genesis 5. And you'll be really pleased to know that I'm not, not going to read it. It's just going to take too long. That isn't to, not to mean that it's not important. Um, but, and I would encourage you to read it because we learn a lot from this. But this is the genealogy. It's one of the genealogical outlines in the Bible, which we also have in, if you remember, in Matthew 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. Um, in Luke 3, we also have a genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Adam. And in fact, in Genesis 11, when we come to Genesis 11, we've also got a genealogy there from Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah, down to Abraham. But here we have a genealogy um, uh, outlining the line from Adam to Noah. And I just want to make three observations about genealogies, uh, or three observations about this particular genealogy. The first is... A general point, why do we have genealogies? Why are genealogies important in the Bible? You've got this whole list of um, family members, one member leading to another family, to another, to another, to another. Why is that important? Well, I think one of the main reasons is it roots the Bible in true historical events. So this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't allegory. These are real people who lived in real time. Uh, and had real families. So it roots the Bible in reality. And this is important, particularly when all the discussion about Genesis is, you know, how much is allegory, how much, you know, this is real. I believe it's real right from Genesis 1, okay? And it goes all the way through. And so this is part of the reality of Genesis and the Bible. And certainly that was the New Testament view. Um, these people, um, some of these are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Adam, of course, is mentioned a number of times. Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about Adam, compares the first Adam to the second Adam, which is Jesus. So he certainly believed in a real Adam. We have a chap called Enoch further on in this, in, chapter eight, uh, sorry, in verse 18. We'll come to Enoch a little bit later. Um, but Enoch is certainly mentioned in the book of Jude and also in the book of Hebrews. So they believed in Enoch. And Jesus himself, of course, refers to Noah when he talks about in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. So Jesus himself believed in this genealogy, this family tree. So that's the first point I want to get across, is the importance of genealogies or family trees. 
The second thing we can see about this genealogy is, um, I've headed it, procreation. Because if you remember in Genesis 2, God's clear message to mankind, after he'd made them in his image, was to go forth and multiply. It was to spread out across the earth. The reason being, of course, that God wanted to create a family for himself. God is a relational being. He wants to have relationship. This is the marvelous thing. This is one of the reasons Jesus came, so we could have a relationship with God. But God, right from the outset, wanted to create a family of people who would, of their own free will, come to him, become part of his family, and have a relationship with him. So this, I think, was the message behind his command to go forth and to multiply, to procreate. And, of course, this is one of the things that they were doing. Here we see this in action. They are, at least in this stage, obeying, obeying the Lord. They are, they, they are having children, and those children are having children, and the human race is spreading out across the earth. With one problem, one little problem, which is a huge problem, of course, sin. Sin had now come into the human race, and as man spread and multiplied, as we'll see, so did sin. So this is a problem. And the third thing I want to bring from this is the result of sin. It's the result of sin. Now, if, if you just have a look at the structure of these uh, verses, they're in paragraphs, and each paragraph is written in a similar way. So you have the name of the person who fathered the child, you have how long he lived before he fathered his first child, then you have the birth of that child, and then you have how long he lived after the birth of that child, and then you have a small sentence which I'll come to at the end. So, for instance, if you look at verse 3, we have, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years. So you have this repeating pattern all down the paragraphs of people who lived. First thing to notice, of course, is they lived a long time, didn't they? Yeah. Adam, 930 years. Do you know who holds the record? Methuselah, yes. Methuselah is very interesting. Uh, you come across him in verse 27. The name Methuselah, roughly translated, is when he dies, it shall come. When he dies, it shall come. What shall come? The flood shall come. This is a prophetic name, and there are people who reckon that they can exactly pin Methuselah's death to just before the flood. So this prophetic name actually became reality. That's a little bit of a side issue, but I just thought I'd throw it in because that's really interesting. But Methuselah holds a record for 969 years, and I believe these are actually actual years. I believe people did live this long. It was a very different environment. The pre-flood world was very different from the post-flood world. We need to realize that. So people did live longer. Sin, of course, hadn't taken the full route that it was going to, so that may be another reason why people live longer. But just as we believe in a seven-day creation, I believe here that people lived for this length of time. But then, of course, at the end of each paragraph, there is this, the, the, these four words, and then he died. So Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. And that is repeated every single paragraph, except one. Does anybody know the exception in this genealogy? I know Keith does. Anybody else know the exception? No? Verse 24, 
uh, if you look at verse 24, there's a chap called Enoch. And we're told that Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And that little passage is expanded more in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11. You can look, look it up in Hebrews 11, the beginning of Hebrews 11. It talks about how Enoch pleased God and was righteous before his, before his eyes, and it pleased God to take him away before his death. So Enoch, a bit like Elijah, didn't physically die. He was taken up before death. But he is the exception. Every other person that you read in this genealogy died. And this, of course, is the result of sin. Spiritual death came immediately at the fall. Spiritual death is separation from God. We could still relate to God. We could still have, by his grace, a relationship with him. But there was a separation. They never had the intimacy that Adam and Eve had. That was broken for good until Jesus returned. So spiritual death comes immediately at the fall, but there was a long wait until physical death came for the majority of people. Abel, unfortunately, faced physical death fairly early, early on, as, as did others. But natural physical death came much later, but inevitably it came. It was delayed, but it was unavoidable. Spiritual death was the immediate consequence of the fall, and physical death followed on. It was never part of God's original plan. It was never part of his creation. Death came into the world. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, even though death and sin came into the world, God had a plan. And this is the second part, you know, the outworking of sin and God's plan to deal with it. God had a plan right from the start. And that plan was to bring forward a Messiah. So that's the genealogy in a nutshell, Genesis 5. We're going to sing a song now, and then we'll get into Genesis 6. But the song, quite appropriately, is Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Before we get into Genesis 6, let's just pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the message of that last song. Beneath the cross we are saved, we are part of your family. And we thank you, Father, that as we've seen, this was your intention from the start, was to draw a family together, a family that you could love and care for, and a family that could relate to you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that still is your plan. And you will bring that to fruition. You've already partly brought it to fruition already, Father, with the birth of your church and birth of people who come to you through the Lord Jesus. But there will be a greater reality to come when you return to this earth, Lord. And we thank you for that. We look towards it. And I pray now, Father, if you go right back to the beginning of Scripture, you would help us grasp what is going on here Help us to grasp some of your character um, and your grace. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would put this deep into our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Right, so we'll turn to Genesis 6 now. And we're just going to look at the first eight verses. And this you can turn to, and I'm going to read it. So Genesis 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 8. So, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, 
when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. So this is a little bit of a section of scripture in two halves. I'm going to look at the first four verses first, but they are linked, and I'll explain that link. The first four verses can be a little bit of a mystery, and uh, we had a good discussion about these, and uh, I've read a little bit about what the early church and indeed Jewish thought thought about these mysterious verses in many ways. But this is a real insight into what happened, and it's also uh, an insight, I believe, into why the flood occurred at this time. Because I don't know if you've ever thought, there's a little bit of a dilemma. Man was pretty sinful before the flood. Man was pretty sinful, wasn't he, after the flood. So God didn't destroy sin through the flood. There must have been another reason why he brought about the flood. Okay? Because sin was still there. Sin was still present. It was, an, it was an infection in the human race that occurred at the fall and was not banished at the flood. And this is important to grasp. It's something I've only just uh, really grasped perhaps quite recently. So there's another reason that God brought the flood. And we have that reason in these first four verses. So let's unpack these uh, a, a little bit. First of all, verse 2. We're told that the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. So the first question is, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? That's a rhetorical question, but if anyone knows it, they can stick their hands up. Um, the sons of God, thankfully, the Bible tells us who the sons of God are, because in Job 1 and 2, you needn't turn to it now, but you can make a note of it, Job 1 and 2 talks about um, the sons of God presenting themselves before God, and the sons of God in that context are angels. So these are created beings. God created physical humans, uh, earth, earthly beings, earthly creation, but he also had a spiritual creation, we mustn't forget. He created the angels, all sorts of angels, and maybe other things we don't know about. But the sons of God were angels. In Job, they were good angels. They were presenting themselves before God. But here, they are fallen angels. And we have to remember that before there was rebellion on earth through Adam and Eve, there was a rebellion in heaven. We're not given much detail about that, but some of it is in Isaiah 14, about the fall of Satan. And when Satan fell, he also took some of the angels, quite probably a large number, we don't know, of, of um, fallen angels with him. Free will. The angels had as much free will to follow God as well as humans did. And some of the angels, a lot of angels, chose to rebel against God, follow Satan. They are the demons in the New Testament. We come across it frequently. Jesus was casting these out. These are fallen angels. And the sons of God in this passage are fallen angels. And the reason that they're fallen angels and not good angels is that they stepped outside a God-given boundary. God never meant celestial beings to have carnal relations with humans. 
And yet that's exactly what we're told happened. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. So they let themselves loose on the human race. Jude 6 is an important one here. Jude verse 6, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 6, referring to these angels, says that they did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. That's the biblical way of saying they went outside God's command. Jesus himself said that angels are not given in marriage in, in, in heaven. So these angels were not only rebelling in their hearts against God, they were rebelling against his creation. They were going outside their God-given boundaries, just as Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve went outside their God-given boundaries by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So did these fallen angels. Um, Mankind may, not well, mankind may well not have been guiltless in this. This is a little bit of speculation on my part, but I feel that it wasn't as if these angels forced themselves on the human race. I actually believe they were often welcomed in the human race. And the reason I say this is because the reason Adam and Eve stepped out and took the apple is they wanted to be like God. And if we read Isaiah 14, Satan had the same thing. He wanted to be like God. And man, after the flood and we'll come to this, building the Tower of Babel, was trying to get up to where God was, to be like God. So it's, it's been a recurring theme, a recurring sin, this desire to be like God. And I think that this is some of the reasons behind the human race, accepting this uh, abnormal relationship, was that they wanted to be like God. And they thought that by having carnal relations with these angels, that would help them in the process. That's a little bit of speculation. You can take that or leave it. But there's no doubt that God saw all this as sin. I mean, he says uh, in verse, verse 5, he says that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. So God is condemning what has been happening. Um, there's a little passage here. Uh, Their days will be 120 years. This is, this is God says, My spirit will not contend with humans. This is verse 3. Forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Two interpretations for this. One interpretation is that it's 120 years to the flood, okay, and so that's why he won't contend with them. Or it could be that man's lifespan was going to be reduced from that massive length of ages that we saw in the genealogy in chapter 5. It's going to be reduced down to a maximum of 120 years. Um, and certainly we see after the flood, people's ages do drop quite dramatically compared to pre-flood. And I don't know, I don't think I know anybody who's reached 120 years this, uh, you know, in this century. So that is another interpretation of what that means. It may be both as well. It's often both uh, in the Bible. But the key thing is, what was the result of this marriage of daughters of humans with the sons of God? What was the result? Well, the physical result is in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. So the result of this unholy procreation was these people called Nephilim. Now, who are the Nephilim? Well, it's translated uh, as giants uh, in some um, uh, translations. Uh, Nephilim in Hebrew means fallen or mighty ones. So these are abnormal human beings born through an abnormal relationship. Uh, that we're told in verse, uh, end of verse 4, they were the heroes of old and men of renown. That doesn't mean 
they were good heroes, <laughs> you know, marvellous men of renown. I don't believe that, that, that at all. Um, these were sinful, as sinful as the rest of the human race. These were sinful, sinful beings. So what the Nephilim are, they're a genetic mixture, aren't they, of fallen angels and humanity. And this is demonic, because what did God make man to be? God made man to be in his own image, yeah? To be like God. And what do we have here? We don't have man made in their own image. We have man made in the image of Satan, in, in demonic. So this demonic infiltration into the human race produced the very opposite of what God had created. What God's creation was good, this was evil. And the whole human race was being corrupted. It was spreading throughout the human race because as the, as, because the Nephilim themselves would have had children, would have had children, would have had children. So this um, demonic mixture of genes was going all through the human race. It was spreading out, uh, which is why God said the whole of the human race is corrupted. And that, I believe, is why God brought the flood at this time. So we're back to where I started, okay? Because the only way God could deal with this was by wiping out the whole human race. I mean, what a drastic solution, not just the human race, of course, the whole of creation. I mean, what a drastic solution. You have to ask, why did God have to bring such a drastic solution? And I believe this was the reason. It was the only way he had to start again with a pure genetic stock, which was found in Noah. So for me, this explains the reason why the flood occurred at this time and why the flood was needed. I'm going to throw one small thing into the mix because the observant amongst you will have also seen that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So the Nephilim do appear post-flood and these are the giants that uh, were seen when the children of Israel uh, were going into land, the, the ten spies, you, you remember, and they saw these people that looked like giants. And we come across a group of people in the land of Canaan uh, and around the land of Canaan who are giants. Goliath was one. Uh, the Bible calls them Anakim. Um, I'm going to leave it to you to work out how they could have arisen. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. But obviously, there was still some residual problem there. But God wiped these out. In fact, David was told to wipe out the Anakim, and he did, and they did not exist after that. So there was an end, end result. Okay, that's a bit of a lengthy explanation. I hope that's made sense. Um, it's, it's made sense to me because this is quite a mysterious passage, but I hope you can see the relevance of this. It's not just head knowledge. It's a real insight into why God did what he had to do. Okay, so we come to verses 6 to 8, which you'll be pleased to hear are a little bit easier to follow. But having said that, I think these are some of the most poignant verses in the whole of the Bible. Just look at some of the language that, that is used. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings. This beautiful creation that he'd made in his own image, we're told he regretted, and that his heart was deeply troubled. And then further on, uh, just for emphasis, the end of verse 7, I regret that I have made them referring uh, again to the whole of creation. Whoever said God hasn't got emotions, have a look at this passage. You can feel the hurt, the pain that God had. And of course, the reason we have emotions and can feel and have pain and feel hurt is because God has, and we're made in the image of God. This is one of the outworkings of being in the image of God. But you can see here the pain of God. We're told in the first two chapters of Genesis how good creation was, how good God had made it. 
And we can see in these chapters the corruption that has come about through the fall and through the direct influence of Satan and those angels who followed him. But note, this is not a vengeful God. Okay? This is not a God full of anger who's just longing to wipe out the whole of the human race. Ezekiel 18 tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is not something that God wanted to do. It's not something he desired to do. But I hope you can see that in his eyes, this was the only solution, drastic as he was. What he had made was very good. It had been corrupted by sin. It had been infected by, by Satan's um, demonic actions. And God had very little choice. I'm going to talk about model planes because when I was a kid, I used to love making model planes. And when Daniel was a little boy, he used to like making model planes, and I used to like making them with him. And I used to paint them all because he wasn't good enough. So I've got a whole box full of model planes up in my loft waiting for me to deal with. And I've tried to encourage Daniel to take some of them, but he won't. Okay. So I'm left as the creator. You can see where this is going, can't you? As the creator of these model planes, I'm left with the painful duty of having to get rid of them. Okay. And that is going to hurt because I put so much time and effort into that. Now, multiply that by at least 10 billion times, and you can feel the pain that God had. You know, when we create something, we don't want to let it go. We don't want to give it away. And when God created the earth and saw that it was good, he was in exactly the same position. His heart was full of anguish at what he had to do. But, and there's a big but, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the good bit. Because we've talked about the outworking of sin. We've seen the devilish outworking of sin here in the human race. But remember, God has a rescue plan. In Genesis 3.15, there's a first messianic reference in the Bible about Jesus, about the serpent and, and how Jesus will bruise his head and he will bruise his heel. You can read it in Genesis 3.15. So right from the beginning, God knew that he would need uh, a saviour. And even before that, even before he created anything, God knew that he was going to have to come up with, with a saviour. Jesus was there, we're told, even before creation. All creation was made through him. So Jesus was there right at the beginning, and Jesus' role right at the beginning was to be the physical saviour of the human race. So it's not as if God felt terribly sorry for himself and was wringing his hands and thinking, oh no, what have I done? What mistake have I made? God knew right from the beginning exactly how he was going to counter this. And the, the verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This was going to be God's rescue plan. He was going to save one family out of the whole human race at that time. And through that family, he was going to repopulate the earth in a pure form. Um, and so this was God's plan. And of course, from Noah... We go on to Abraham. From Abraham, we go on to the creation of Israel. From Israel, we get on to Jesus. So you can see the beginning of God's creation plan right here. In the midst of sin, God had a plan, and he knew how he was going to work it out. Praise God. Romans 5, 20 to 21 says, But where sin abounded, which it certainly did here, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even though sin was abundant and abounding here, God's grace 
abounded more. Even though death had come into the world, God was going to bring life through the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, we just thank you so much that um, you didn't abandon us, even when we're at such a low point, even though when every inclination of our heart was sinful, Lord, and was rebelling against you, you never gave up. Your grace was always there, grace and mercy before judgment. And even though the judgment had to come, Lord, grace and mercy followed swiftly afterwards. And so we thank you and praise you. And we live in that grace and mercy now. And uh, Father, um, thank you for this reminder of the communion we're going to take, uh, that this is the reality, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners such as us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.